Welcome to the Leadership Development Group's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series. We're excited to have you join us. My name is Tracy Duberman. I'm the founder and CEO of the Leadership Development Group. We are a global coaching and leadership development consultancy with an exclusive focus in the health industry. Over the years, we've had the distinct pleasure of working with some of the brightest talent in our industry, leaders who are clearly making a difference in the work they do to provide high quality care for those in need while designing approaches to enhance health and wellness. The purpose of this podcast series is to showcase how leadership is the essential ingredient to address the ever-growing issues and challenges facing the U.S. healthcare industry. As we know through our work, the great majority of these challenges are too complex and wide-ranging for any one sector to solve independently. This is where a health ecosystem leadership approach pays more than significant dividends. Solutions which emphasize how the various sectors of the health industry operate interdependently are the only ones with the potential to deliver on critical imperatives like affordability, access, and outcomes. During this podcast series, we will introduce you to some of the best and brightest health ecosystem leaders who will share practical examples of how they have successfully demonstrated a collaborative mindset, as well as the critical behaviors that lead to positive outcomes for their organizations, their patients, and the communities they serve. Today, I am pleased to welcome Rick Pollack to our podcast. He is the president and CEO of the American Hospital Association. The AHA represents more than 5,000 hospitals and 43,000 members nationwide and works to ensure that the perspective and needs of healthcare providers are heard and addressed in the national health policy development. The association has been cited by numerous national publications as one of the most influential and effective advocacy organizations in Washington. Since taking the helm in May of 2015, Rick has served the organization for more than three decades. He has developed a sterling reputation for pressing the hospital group's agenda on Capitol Hill and beyond. Under his leadership, the AHA launched AHA PAC, now one of the largest healthcare political action committees in the U.S., supporting congressional candidates who support hospitals and patients. Through his vision, the AHA also helped found in 2000 the Coalition to Protect America's Healthcare, a group of providers, businesses, and other stakeholders dedicated to ensuring the financial viability of our nation's hospitals from the threats of federal cuts and reimbursement for hospital payments. Rick has been a leader in efforts to expand health coverage in the United States, taking part in many broad-based national coalitions that ultimately led to government expansion under the Affordable Care Act. He holds a bachelor's degree in poli-sci and communications from the State University of New York's College of Portland. He also earned a master's degree in public administration from the American University. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. So Rick, you are a national healthcare leader representing America's hospitals and health systems and the patients that they care for. What's your agenda for 2020, both from a public policy perspective and other issues? Sure. Well, you know, in many ways, if you start with public policy, this year is last year. And I say that because Congress left uh, a lot of unfinished business. So when we talk about uh, what's high on the list for this coming year, one of them is dealing with the issue of Medicaid dish reductions. Uh, Those dish reductions to 
hospitals that serve a high vo volume of low-income patients uh, were supposed to kick in in its billions of dollars on October 1st, and we prevented it uh, from kicking in, uh, but they only stopped them until May 22nd. So when we get to the springtime, those uh, moratorium on the cuts from kicking in will need to be extended. At the same time, uh, the other issue that's been unresolved that will continue to get a lot of attention is the issue of so-called surprise billing. And uh, that's one that will come back at us for sure. Uh, we hope that over the course of this year, from a public policy perspective, that certain issues um, can also be addressed relative to um, a rural package to help hospitals in rural areas. Uh, I don't know whether there's potential for a drug pricing compromise um, in the political environment that we're in, but we will certainly work toward that. And the other big issue that's on the public policy agenda for next year is continued regulatory matters. Um, we continue to look for regulatory relief and uh, final regulations on the Stark laws that allow hospitals uh, and physicians to work more collaboratively together. Um, we're concerned about potential Medicaid reforms that uh, may allow states uh, to um, use waivers for block grants. Uh, there is also a concern with regard to a Medicaid rule that uh, could upset the way a lot of financing systems work at the state level. And then the other big issue for the coming year from a public policy perspective is the continued uh, litigation efforts that we're involved in, uh, where on several matters, the administration has taken action that we believe they don't have the statutory authority to take. And that has to do with the 340B program that mandates uh, discounts to hospitals from drug manufacturers. It has to do with site neutral payments where we believe the administration has acted improperly. Um, and it has to do with the rule that they've put out concerning the mandatory disclosure of privately negotiated rates. Um, of course, campaign 2020 is a big issue as well in which uh, we will be involved for sure. So those are some of the uh, big uh, public policy issues that we have before us. And, and Rick, I'm curious, you've been with the AHA in your particular role for five years, obviously more than three decades in, in, in total in terms of your professional tenure. Um, what would you say, having listed the public policy issues for 2020, what's the biggest difference between 2015 versus 2020 in terms of what the focus is for AHA? Well, back in 2015, um, uh, the big issue at that point really was um, the uh, getting ready for the presidential election that ultimately culminated in President Trump being elected and repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act being front and center. And, um, you know, that was really the key issue. And that we spent a year or two dealing with that. Uh, at this point, the future of the Affordable Care Act is still, um, you know, uh, something that's in play, but that one is before the courts as opposed to the Congress. So at that point in time, the, that was the critical issue from a legislative perspective. I don't think we're going to see it right now from a legislative perspective because it's in the courts.
Got it. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a constant uphill battle, I'm sure, right? Never a dull moment in your position within the AHA. No question about it. And of course, you know, uh, as long as the federal government is um, investing in health care in terms of Medicare and Medicaid and the degree to which those two programs constitute a lot of the services we provide, um, you know, we're always involved in these governmental public policy issues. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, as you know, Rick, because we've spoken about it, um, our focus is really on the collaborative environment that's required in order for any of the hospitals and health systems that you so uh, ably uh, represent, in order for them to actually meet their mission, they have to be able to collaborate across different sectors. And I heard you mention the drug pricing um, as being one of the public policy issues that you're focusing on. Collaboration with the pharmaceutical industry from your perspective, is that something that um, you feel is moving in the right direction? Um, what would you like to see happen there in order to um, impact more positively the care in which hospitals and health system provides to their consumers? Well, you know, you have to separate things in a sense. Um, when it comes to public policy issues, um, depending upon the issue, you're always in a different alliance or coalition with different people. Let's take the drug companies as an example. Um, you know, we are very much in very different places on the 340B program that mandates that they provide discounts to our hospitals that serve a lot of low-income people or to children's hospitals or to cancer hospitals or to critical access hospitals. They don't like giving us those discounts. Um, they've been trying to curtail, if not eliminate, that 340B program. We've been in a fight with them over that. Yes. Um, in addition to that, we're very troubled by the rising drug prices, and we want to see measures taken to restrain them in a significant way. And um, obviously, we're in a different place on those issues. But on the other hand, when it comes to the issue of Medicare for all, um, we're in a coalition with them, basically saying that that's not the right approach to expand coverage, that building on the ACA framework is a better way. Um, you know, it all depends upon the issue that you're involved in. I can give you the different stakeholder and I can tell you where we're with people and where we have differences. So it all depends on the public policy front. On the practice front, obviously, we all depend upon the innovation that certain medicines provide and the miracles and the life-saving aspects that uh, pharmaceuticals bring to the care process. Of course, we're concerned about the cost and we're concerned about um, things that don't represent real innovation um, as opposed to um, uh, things that um, you know do represent breakthroughs. So there, there's obviously uh, a collaboration approach between us and the pharmaceutical um, field. Um, but there are real distinctions here when you look at the policy and politics as opposed to the, the practice. I think that that is such wisdom to be shared with emerging healthcare leaders, that you can be both competitor and collaborator at the same time um, within the, the sectors that you either compete with or need to be collaborating with in order to um, execute on your mission. So that's actually very, very helpful to hear from your perspective. And, you know, if you take the insurance industry, by the way, it's another good example of where 
Um, we are together on with the Pharmaceutical Coalition uh, against Medicare for All, but we and the insurers are part of coalitions where we share the same objective uh, in terms of trying to restrain drug prices. Both we and the insurers and AARP and Walmart are in the Coalition for Sustainable Drug Prices. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another example policy-wise. And then when you get into um, uh, practice in terms of the delivery of care, we, uh, in some cases, find ourselves in partnerships with insurers and health plans um, where we work together as partners to achieve um, uh, efficiencies and better delivery. Um, And then there are places where, um, you know, in practice, there are competitive uh, situations as well. So there's nothing that's black and white here. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. And and we've we've, uh, determined that probably one of the key leadership behaviors that is required to do this type of work, the, the yin and the yang of moving things forward, is to be able to manage um, boundaries and obstacles efficiently um, and to be able to align diverse and sometimes competing um, stakeholders in ways that they they want to work together with, with you um, representing the AHA. And I think you've named some very good examples of how you've done that um, well. The, the question that I have for you with the wisdom that you have is, with Washington so divided, um, what's in the realm of possibility there? Do you think anything will be able to get done, especially in an election year, when we have the two dueling forces of the Democrats versus the Republicans? It's a great question. And, you know, I think the answer is yes. Um, There are things that can be done. Um, Are they going to be major reforms? No. But, um, for instance, those Medicaid dish reductions, um, both sides of the aisle agree that those shouldn't take place. And that's why they put them off. And 300 members of the House, um, uh, Democrats and Republicans together, have been together in voicing concerns along those lines. Uh, On surprise billing, I think, you know, there's a lot of agreement on both sides of the aisle on uh, how we have to protect the patient. Uh, the patient should never be billed uh, more than the uh, in-network rate in terms of the out-of-pocket exposure. Um, the fight is really over how do you work out the rest of the payment between providers and insurers where the insurers want to impose a reference price and we would rather negotiate with the insurer or have a meaningful Uh, arbitration process. I think ultimately on that one, there's common ground that can be found across the aisle. On coming up with a rural package um, that uh, provides um, different uh, ways for rural hospitals to either qualify for critical access designation or to um, provide help for them in terms of broadband or to expand telehealth opportunities or to provide infrastructure grants for right sizing. Um, there's a lot of opportunity that is bipartisan. Um, the uh, issue of uh, increased accountability uh, for health plans because we see uh, a lot of health plans doing uh, denials and requiring a lot of hurdles through preauthorization for people to get care. Uh, that's one that I think represents bipartisan interest. So I think that there's a fair amount of issues that can get done. And the fact that they specifically prevented those Medicaid dish cuts, and by the way, it's not only Medicaid dish, there are other public health programs 
whose funding expires on May 22nd, the fact that they put in a May 22nd date means that there's a, a, a cliff, if you will, uh, a point at which action needs to be taken. And that provides a platform that might carry some of these bipartisan things that I just mentioned. Mm, that's actually uh, very encouraging to hear. Um, what, what do you believe healthcare leaders uh, should be thinking about in this climate today in 2020? Well, I think there are probably five things that um, ought to be on their minds, and I would venture a guess that uh, it's already on their minds, and virtually all hospitals and health systems are thinking about these five things in one form or another. Uh, the first is reducing cost. Um, the the, um, the quest to uh, create more efficiencies and reduce cost, everybody's got to keep doing that. Um, the second is continue to deliver on superb outcomes from a quality perspective. Uh, the third thing is that um, everyone needs to continue to think about how to assure alignment between physicians and hospitals uh, in particular, but all providers and hospitals. And again, the movement that we've seen from the administration in a very positive way uh, to modernize the Stark uh, laws is reflective of, the, of helping people move in that direction. The fourth thing is um, I think everybody has to be uh, um, experimenting with innovative payment models uh, around value-based payment um, and uh, looking toward those models to achieve, again, greater efficiencies and better care. And the fifth thing that I think everybody needs to be thinking about is how to make care more convenient. Um, you know, a lot of the consultants talk about taking the friction out of the system. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that we have to make care more convenient to patients. We have to meet patients where they need the care. So much care now is being provided on an outpatient basis. Um, and making um, the patient care experience more convenient and um, improving that experience is something that everybody has to keep in, in front and center. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's interesting that these five um, objectives do require that hospital and health system leaders look outside their own four walls um, in order to impact cost, outcomes, alignment, uh, the payment model, and, and convenience. Um, I wonder, you know, the, the, the move from volume to value we've been talking about now for almost a decade, yet only a small majority of hospitals are actually doing value-based payment with insurance companies. Why do you think that is? Well, a couple of things. You know, you say we've been talking about it for a while, and you're right. I recently saw a quote from uh, former uh, Secretary of HHS, Mike Levitt, who said we're uh, 25 years into a 40-year transition in terms of value-based payment. Um, and, you know, the, the reality is you have to look at value-based payment as a continuum. Um, on the one hand, you have pay-for-performance which from the federal perspective at least, is largely um, penalties as opposed to incentives. Uh, and uh, you know, that's you know, where you get 
penalized for readmissions, you get penalized for hospital acquired conditions, you get penalized for not being compliant with IT. That's a form of value-based payment. Uh, you moving along that continuum, you have bundling. Moving further along that continuum, you have accountable care organizations. Moving further along that continuum, you have Medicare Advantage. Um, so those are the federal approaches to value-based payment. And the reality is, if you're a Medicare provider, which all of our hospitals are, um, you're already doing value-based payment. Um, when you think about other forms on the private side and why we see it not moving as fast as we would hope, a lot of it has to do with uh, hospitals and health systems having partners in the plan or insurer community. There are places where there are partnerships and insurers are willing to, in fact, uh, enter into these arrangements. But what we hear from our members is that there are a lot of insurance plans um, that simply don't want to engage in these arrangements. Um, they're not interested in shared savings or they want to not share in the savings. And they have so much market dominance that they don't need to um, engage in these strategies that from a financial perspective, they would rather just uh, use their leverage to ratchet down the rates to providers. You know, 70, according to the AMA, 73% of health insurance markets are highly concentrated. And in 46%, uh, or 175 uh, metropolitan statistical areas, uh, one insurer had 50% of the market. So if you're in those situations, there's less of an inclination for the insurer to be a partner in shared savings. Mm -hmm. They just don't need to be. Um, so that's the big hurdle that we see out there. Ah, I understand. That's actually very helpful for our listeners to to know as well. What would you suggest then, Rick? I mean, you you, you spend so much time um, on Capitol Hill um, lobbying for the AHA. What would be your suggestion um, to to make the move to value based care uh, something that is attractive to insurance companies as much as it could be for the hospital and health system leaders? Well, I think the insurance companies need to understand that um, the alternative to value-based payment and partnerships in value-based payment is going to end up being Medicare for all or one form or derivative of that. And that means that their um, entire existence uh, may be at risk. So either um, you know, you come together on delivery system reforms that represent innovation in the delivery of care. Um, through value-based payment, or at some point, uh, people will just throw up their hands and they'll, while it may not happen today, um, they could go in that direction tomorrow and then the health insurers will have an extremely limited role in, in the ecosystem. That's excellent, excellent advice. I hope some of our, our payer clients are listening to this as well. Um, okay, I want to change gears to talk about one aspect sure. of healthcare that's been in the news more often in the past year, and that's been hospital and health system mergers. So right. from your perspective, are they good for patients? Um, we think that they are. Um, now, I, I, in saying that, um, you know, it's, it's mergers and acquisitions or consolidation um, in general, I, I think, has a lot of uh, benefits, but that doesn't mean that every single hospital should be engaged in a merger or an acquisition. But, you know, some of the reasons that it's important um, is because in many cases, 
some of these mergers and acquisitions, um, frankly, are um, keeping hospitals alive. There are a lot of hospitals that are brought into systems that simply could not survive on their own. And that means that access just wouldn't exist in the absence of them being part of a larger entity. Why is it important to be a part of a larger entity? Well, if you're going to take risk to different forms of value-based payment, uh, you need scale. And you have to be part of larger organizations to have the scale to be able to manage the risk to be in those payment mechanisms. In addition, larger organizations are better able to achieve efficiencies when it comes to group purchasing. And larger organizations are able to uh, uh, access capital markets for tax-exempt financing in particular or any kind of capital financing more effectively. We also find that when you create systems, um, you also create increased value to the patient in terms of the ability to coordinate care um, in a way in which they can have access to a variety of services that a system can offer that perhaps an individual freestanding hospital can't. So those are some of the reasons that we think that um, uh, the mergers and the uh, acquisitions um, do bring benefits. Um, and we also know from studies that we've done um, that it has not increased revenues, um, it has created efficiencies, and we also find uh, that there have been quality increases as a result of some of these mergers and acquisitions. Excellent. And in your uh, long tenure at the AHA, have you seen the type of uh, hospital closings that we've been reading about recently? Um, has it increased steadily or is what we're reading not necessarily indicative of, of, of factual information? No, there's been a little bit of an uptick, and it's been particularly uh, the case in rural areas, uh, and that's why I mentioned earlier that uh, we do need to be uh, and do hope that the Congress will come together on a rural package that will ensure access in rural areas, and there are various recommendations I mentioned that uh, could be done to address that. So um, I think that, you know, yes, we've seen a, a little bit of an uptick in the closures, particularly in rural areas. Okay, okay. I, I recall a few years ago uh, being at one of the AHA leadership summits and there was this um, wonderful presentation around changing the H and AHA from hospital to health, um, keeping in line with the idea behind social determinants and everybody talking and recognizing at least people knew, but now we're verbalizing that the social determinants really impact health and wellness more, more than uh, anything else, any type of clinical care. Tell me a little bit about what you see as the role of the AHA in pushing forward an agenda that focuses on health and wellness and social determinants outside of clinical care. Yep. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about redefining the H for some time, uh, meaning that the H means something that's very special to people um, in terms of uh, security and knowing that when you go to that building that has the H on it, you're going to be taken care of 24-7 by people um, that are of the highest caliber of professional competence and compassion, um, but that that H is changing um, and it means healthcare in the sense that so much of it is being done on an outpatient basis in the home, in the community, and we recognize that we need to change. Now, having said that, um, one thing that will always take place in our buildings are the sophisticated care associated with uh, 
certain uh, surgeries and therapeutics and diagnostics and certainly for emergency and trauma care. So that's not going to go away. But we are working to redefine the H, no question about it. And part of redefining the H um, is, in fact, recognizing that we need to be a partner in addressing the social determinants of health because, to your point, uh, roughly 80% of all health care is affected by non-clinical things, um, proper diet, um, uh, having a job, having education appropriately, um, having uh, a right environmental situation for people, having uh, proper nutrition, uh, all of those things affect health. Uh, you know, as much as clinical care. Um, so uh, we realize that that is a part of taking care of our patients and communities. But I think it's important, and I stress the word partners, uh, you can't expect hospitals to do that all on their own. And uh, to address those things, you have to do it in partnership with others. The other thing in terms of addressing the social determinants that will ultimately take us in the direction we need to go in is the financing model. As long as we're being paid on a fee-for-service basis, um, addressing the social determinants isn't really um, part of the financial incentive structure. If you get into um, structures in which you are either capitated or you are um, part of taking uh, care of people across the continuum for uh, a negotiated amount for a um, attributed population, you will have the financial incentives to take care of the social determinants of health. And I think we have to have a system that's more structured in that manner where the providers um, have uh, uh, an ability um, to structure things in a way in which they can take care of the patients um, and that the financial incentives are aligned to do that. I couldn't agree with you more. That value-based payment structure is certainly um, a, a high priority for social determinants and population health. <clears throat> I would hope that we could move uh, quickly toward that. Um, and hopefully within the next decade, we see more and more insurance companies offering value-based payments. Uh, the, the AHA is widely known as one of the most influential and effective advocacy organizations for healthcare providers. In a period of such rapid change, what has your experience been like representing this important voice on Capitol Hill? Well, you know, it, it's certainly challenging, but the one thing we have um, that uh, gives us an awful lot of credibility and an awful lot of influence is the fact that virtually every single congressional district has a hospital. And um, we are one of the largest employers in many of those communities. So, um, you know, people do uh, feel the need to listen to us. And, you know, we represent organizations that are cornerstones of the communities that they serve. They're just critical. So from that perspective, it's never, that's never, ever changed. And I don't believe it ever will. Um, one of the things that we really seek to do is uh, to be an educator of legislators on healthcare issues, uh, not just a, a one-issue organization. And we want uh, legislators to look to us uh, as a resource when it comes to understanding healthcare issues. One of the things that I, I think we've seen change over the years is that um, there are so many different tools 
to uh, affect the advocacy process. And um, one of the most important ones that we focus on is data. Um, to People may not realize the degree to which uh, folks on the Hill are in fact data-driven in making decisions. Um, there are certainly other things that impact them, but data is really important. Um, and the other thing that's really important is offering alternatives. You can't always be against everything. You have to be in a place to provide thought leadership where if you're against something, you have to offer an alternative. Um, you can't always just oppose everything. And I think that those are some very important pieces of what ensures influence in the advocacy environment. That is a wonderful segue into my closing question for you, Rick. You have been in the industry for your entire career and you have uh, been responsible for bringing forth a number of key initiatives to the AHA. All of that being said, when you look back on your career, what would you want your legacy to be as a leader in this industry? Well, you know, um, I, I always think of leadership in the context of servant leadership, uh, and, uh, you know, that means serving an organization. It, it's really not about me and a personal legacy. It's really about the organization. And um, if, if there's two things that kind of pop to mind that I would want to be associated with uh, as a part of the organization, it would be having expanded coverage and the role that we've played in um, expanding coverage to kids initially and then through the Affordable Care Act to uh, millions and millions of people. Certainly the work is not done, but I would hope that um, our role in having expanded coverage will certainly be, um, you know, something that people will look toward as an achievement. And I think the other one we touched on, and that is the redefining of the age mm. and uh, starting the process of understanding that, yep, what we do in the buildings are really important, but we're more than a building. And um, I think that if people look back and said, hey, you did it, you made progress on expanding coverage, you made progress on expanding uh, the H um, outside of its four walls and into the communities, I think that that would be something that would be worthy of uh, being remembered. I, I think um, you'll be you'll be more than remembered for that. You've already made some a, a significant uh, effort in, uh, in 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 being in in changing the AHA for the better. And uh, I know that uh, we and and many of our clients have benefited uh, under your leadership, Rick. And I want to thank you very very much for giving us some of your time today and sharing your wisdom and experience and. Look forward to seeing what's to come from you uh, at the helm of the, of the AHA. For those of you interested in learning more about leadership, please visit us at TLD Group's website. Join us for more interviews with health ecosystem leaders during our podcast series. And of course, stay tuned for the release of our book entitled From Competition to Collaboration, How Leaders Cultivate Cross-Sector Partnerships to Deliver Value and Transform Health. Thank you for joining us.